It is 11.06. Glad to have you with us. Well, 11.07, actually. Uh, glad to have you with us. Uh, 874-9390. Toll-free 800-529-5572. One of my favorite guests and favorite guest hosts is Dave Rowland. Uh, victory in Edgar Springs. You can fight City Hall for the right to go to City Hall. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, federal courts issued a couple of interesting Second Amendment rulings. We'll kick that around. Uh, Missouri judge rules the the uh, AG's office, the Attorney General's office, under Josh Hawley, knowingly violated transparency laws. And uh, finally, a mayor's visit, a mysterious lawsuit. How oh, a Baldwin man was removed from the ballot. Uh, that's all coming up. In about uh, 10 minutes, so uh, we invite you to join us on a Think Tank Thursday. In the meantime, I was telling you about this mother in Texas and how this law protected her uh, from uh, this uh, family court, but it didn't protect her from criminal court. Uh, So this child that uh, was acting up and told to walk home the last half mile in a quiet suburban neighborhood, this mother ended up losing her house, lost her home, lost her job, threatened with jail, all because she asked her eight-year-old son to walk. Now, at eight years old, I used to walk from my house to St. Anne's School every morning. My parents were never arrested. Um, She uh, was a qualified teacher a child sleep therapist. She faced up to 20 years in prison if convicted. Rather than risk jail time, she admitted the offense, carried out a community service program, forced to resign from her job and barred from working with children. She and her husband have sold their family home to cover their legal and medical bills. They sought treatment for stress as a result of the incident. It's just insane that the government has the power to do this. Just absolutely insane. They've ruined this woman's life. She can't work in her given field. And so they've lost their house. Unbelievable. Ms. Wallace said a caseworker from Texas Child Protective Services arrived and grilled her about her parenting habits while she was still handcuffed in the back of the cruiser. I think they're trying to figure out what to do with me and whether what I had done was illegal or not. Around three hours after that, after they got to her house, they finally arrested her. She hired an attorney told her that if convicted, she faced a minimum two years in prison could be sentenced to up to 20 years. I wanted to fight the charges, but I didn't really know what my rights were. She agreed to plead guilty, carried out a diversion program, including 65 hours of work in an early childhood center. She was forbidden from being there during weekdays when children were around and instead worked weekends carrying out cleaning duties and helping to develop the school curriculum. She said she also had to undergo random drug testing, was forced to leave her children alone to travel to the testing center. Due to the child endangerment conviction, she was forced to resign from the pediatric sleep consultancy firm where she had previously worked. 
and is barred from finding work as a teacher. Under the strain of thinking they might lose their kids, both parents sought therapy and added expense to their income uh, after their income had already been cut in half. The financial toll forced them to sell their home. They're now living in a rented duplex. They hope to eventually build on a one-acre plot of land that they purchased where the three boys will be able to roam outside. Her sister has set up a GoFundMe page to help uh, ease their financial burden. She lost confidence in her own ability as a mother, something that she has been working hard to regain. It's all very painful. I know I needed to be confident in the parenting decisions I make because they're mine to make instead always worrying about what other people are thinking. She wants other mothers and fathers to know their rights and also to respect other people's parenting choices. Well, that's a howdy-do. All she did is let her eight-year-old kid walk the last half-mile home. And they ruined her life. I hate big government. I don't want to see kids get punished. I don't want to see kids get hurt. But I don't think the government is the uh, ultimate arbiter. I actually think she should have gone she should have gone to court. And they should have gotten a jury of her peers. Other parents who would engage in the same behavior. And I will tell you that if if uh, if a libertarian were in that jury, you'd have jury nullification, no matter what. What a sad, sad tale. Once again, this is a story of something that might have happened, not something that did happen. And they're punishing someone for it. Yes. It's well, pathetic. It is pathetic. You, you would think uh, that they would... Uh, you know, scold her, if you will, and say, hey, don't do that in the future because this could happen. And, you know, make her do a little bit of community service or whatever, and you're done with it. Instead, you ruin her life? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Oh, boy. You know, and yeah. I wonder why people go postal. I mean, it's, that is just absurd. It absolutely makes me crazy. Uh, apparently, there is uh, still some con- some conflict about uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband and that assault. Uh, there is a difference between the local prosecutor's charges and the federal prosecutor's charges. And it deals with who opened the door. And a lot of people are trying to put something together out of it. I don't understand it myself. Uh, I, I don't have time to play this uh, audio excerpt from uh, an NBC uh, local NBC affiliate in uh, San Francisco, but apparently, uh, according to the uh, federal prosecutor, the police opened the door. According to the local prosecutor, Pelosi opened the door, and the police had to step back. And what makes this kind of interesting is the police had cameras, and it was, in fact, Pelosi who opened the door. And I, 
I don't know. They, there's uh, all kinds of conflict about uh, what that might mean. Uh, but if we get a chance, well, no, I don't think we're going to have that chance. Uh, it is worth looking at. Uh, I, I, I don't know what was going on. It's confusing. The guys confessed. We know what it was. It's just why would, why would the federal government make one case and the state make another? It's, it's, um, and, and it's fueling all kinds of conspiracy theories. It's peculiar. All right. Listen, we're up against the clock. We've got to take a break. We've got uh, Dave Rowland coming up. Una momento. It is the Gary Nolan Show. Think Tank Thursday on the Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 19 minutes after 11 o'clock. And Dave Rowland, sometime fill-in talk show host and attorney extraordinaire. Uh, and uh, he has chalked up a victory. Dave, welcome. How are you? I'm doing really well, Gary. How are you doing? I'm 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 kind of this is kind of fun. Uh, not a new or novel policy. Judge rules Missouri town cannot ban a woman seeking records. Uh, who was her attorney? I I was the attorney that represented oh. Miss Rebecca Barney in this case. Do tell. Give the details. Yeah, so listeners may recall, we've been talking about this case for a couple of years now. Back in 2018, Rebecca Varney uh, got a traffic ticket in her hometown of Edgar Springs, and she swears up and down she did not roll through a stop sign, but that was the ticket she was given. And as a result of this, you know, what she perceived to be this injustice, she decided she wanted to dig into the city's public records and find out just how many similar types of traffic tickets were they handing out. And what she found out is that the city was basically bankrolling itself uh, by traffic tickets. They were using traffic tickets as their primary source of revenue. And state law doesn't allow you to do this. And so she started kicking up a ruckus about it, and the city got rebuked, and they're not allowed to uh, draw all that revenue from, tra from traffic tickets anymore. And she decided to continue digging into the city's records, and she found all sorts of what she perceived to be as mismanagement of the city's affairs. And so she started loudly sharing her opinions about the way this city was mismanaging itself um, to her fellow neighbors and to the surrounding area. And as you might imagine, Gary, it rubbed some people the wrong way. And one day when she was in City Hall reviewing public records, as is her right under Missouri law, they said, okay, you know what, that's enough, get out. And she tried to say, no, wait, I, I'm a citizen. I have the right to review public records in person at City Hall. They said, you will get out now or we will call the sheriff's office. And ultimately, they did call the sheriff's office to have her removed. Now, they didn't say she had broken any laws. They didn't say that she was causing uh, any kind of a, a ruckus or uh, disrupting affairs other than that she kept asking to review public records. That's the one thing that they said is, well, she just keeps coming in here and asking to review public records and we're tired of it. So they, she then gets this notice from the city saying she's banned from city hall. Now, anyone else can go down to city hall at any time that, you know, it's doors are open, regular business hours, and they can go and they can transact business or they can review public records. But according to the city, Rebecca Varney was completely banned from doing so. They did say, you are allowed to come into City Hall 
when the city council has its regular meetings, but outside of that, you're not allowed to be here. Well, so she kept coming in for the city council meetings, and then on one Saturday, she saw a bunch of cars outside of City Hall, and it was the vehicles she knew of these local city elected officials. And so she surmised from this that they must be having a public meeting, and she intended to find out what this public meeting was about. No meeting had been announced. There was no agenda posted, nothing like that. So she goes in, and she sees several of these elected officials sitting around discussing public business. And she says, if you're having a meeting, the citizens have a right to be here. And they said, you're trespassing. You've got to get out. And they, again, called the sheriff's department. Uh, to come and have her removed. So then they issue another no trespass notice, and it says she's banned from coming to city council meetings. Well, at this point, the Freedom Center of Missouri gets involved. She contacted us, let us know what was going on, and uh, I went down there at the next city council meeting on the evening of the next city council meeting, and I talked to the police chief, and I said, look, you can't ban a citizen from attending a public meeting. Like, you, you just can't. There's due process problems. There's sunshine law problems. And he said, well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the city has spoken. And if she tries to come in this building, we're going to treat her like a trespasser. She'll be cited. And so they banned her from coming to that meeting. Well, that night, I sent off a very sternly worded letter to the city attorney. And I pointed out all the different ways that what they had done was, number one, unconstitutional because it violated her right to due process, it violated her right to equal protection of laws, it punished her simply because she was engaging in First Amendment expression, um, and it also denied her the right to petition her government officials for redress of grievances. And then I also pointed out the Sunshine Law violations that they've engaged in. And I said, you guys have got to fix this or you're going to get sued. Well, they didn't fix it, and they got sued. And so we've spent the last couple of years in litigation with the city over this. And, and here's the thing, Gary, and I think this is important. I told the city's attorney early on, I said, look, if you guys will just admit that what you did violated the Constitution and violated the Sunshine Law, then we can wrap this up and go home, right? Like, if you just admit that what you did was a violation, you rescind the ban against her coming to City Hall, you agree that you're going to let her come in here on the same terms as everybody else to review public records, then this can all go away. And the city specifically refused to admit any wrongdoing at all. And I said, okay, then, we're going to move forward with this. Well, here we are. The judge has now ruled. The judge issued a, a fantastic ruling earlier this week that says, clearly, the city had an obligation. If you're going to deprive a citizen of the same rights that are enjoyed by everybody else, you have to, at a minimum, identify what the citizen did wrong to justify the, the different treatment, and then you have to give them an opportunity to explain why the city's wrong. Like, that's the heart of due process, is a, an opportunity not only to be informed of what, you've, uh, uh, what you're alleged to have done wrong, but then also the opportunity to dispute it 
at a meaningful time and in a meaningful way. And the city offered her no opportunity. They didn't tell her what she did wrong, and they didn't give her an opportunity to dispute that. And the trial court said that's a violation of the due process guarantees of the federal and state constitution. So then we also got a good ruling on some of these Sunshine Law issues. So the the judge confirmed it has been the law in Missouri for more than a century that citizens have a right to go into the place where public records are held and to review those public records in person and to make their own copies of it. You know, you don't have to wait for the government to make copies of these records. If you've got a cell phone that can take pictures, you're allowed to take pictures of those records yourself so you don't have to pay the city to make the copies. Well, but so that frosted some buns. Oh, it did. It absolutely did. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, the, the court says they violated the Sunshine Law by denying her the right to review these records in person and to make her own photographs of them. And they also violated the Sunshine Law by refusing to produce other public records uh, when she requested them. So it, it really is a very thorough victory. Um, the court, uh, this was another interesting point. Um, recognizing that this is a small town, Edgar Springs only has a couple hundred residents. Um, Rebecca said, look, I want to be clear, I'm not in this for any personal gain. So even though the Sunshine Law allows civil penalties of up to $5,000 for a purposeful violation of the Sunshine Law, she said, I only want to ask for $100 per violation. Like, I think that's reasonable. And so that's what we asked for. The judge, in his ruling, specifically noted that she was only asking for $100 per violation, and the judge said, he thought that was inadequate, and of his own volition, he tripled the amount of damages that the city is going to have to pay her uh, as a consequence of their purposeful violations of the Sunshine Law. So, fantastic ruling, not just for our client, Rebecca Varney, but for everyone across Missouri. It confirms the rights that you've got to go and review public records personally in the location where they're held and to make your own copies of those public records. Um, and it also confirms that, look, the city has an obligation to respond properly to public records requests, no matter how small the city is. Like it doesn't matter if you're a small municipality, that's not an excuse for depriving people of the transparency and accountability that Missouri law requires. So we, we could not be more pleased with this outcome. Did they reimburse you for your efforts? The judge did order them to uh, to pay our costs and attorney's fees. Uh, we have to submit uh, we have to submit our uh, request in the next couple of weeks explaining how much we're due and uh, and then the city will have its opportunity to say, well, we think that this is unreasonable, but quite frankly, um, the way that they fought every inch of the way on this, I think that we're going to get our full request. And will they appeal it, do you think? Uh, they can try. I, I think that this opinion is rock solid. If they appeal it, they're going to lose. So we'll find out if they, if they it's their right to ask for an appeal, but, um, but if they do, I, I don't think it's going to be successful. And that will just end up costing the taxpayers even more money. Dave Rowland is with us, uh, mofreedom.org. Uh, and he has uh, just racked up another victory. Federal judge in Texas rules that disarming those under protective orders violates...
Their Second Amendment rights. What does that mean? We'll chat with Dave about that next. The Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. It is 1135, and it is Think Tank Thursday. Dave Rowland is with us. Uh, This is a guy that loves to sue the government to protect your freedom. And uh, he, you know, if he takes up your case, uh, it's free of charge. Uh, But they do take donations to help cover those costs. So if you've got a few bucks you may one day need, Dave, it'll be nice to know that he's got enough money to take your case. Federal judge in Texas rules that disarming those under protective orders violates... Their Second Amendment right. Uh, This is U.S. District Judge David Counts. What's the story here, Dave? So as we've discussed over the last several months, um, the lower courts in this country are trying to figure out how to apply the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in uh, New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And in that case, the Supreme Court said... The way you evaluate a Second Amendment claim is, number one, you figure out if the uh, activity that's being regulated falls within the scope of the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. And then number two, the government has a burden to prove that there is some historical analog to the regulation that's being applied. In other words, they have to go back and look in the nation's history and tradition and identify some similar law or policy that was in force uh, when the Second Amendment was adopted or when the 14th Amendment was ratified. And if the government can't do that, if they can't prove that there's a historical analog, then the, the, the activity is protected by the Second Amendment, and um, the government loses the case. So the lower courts are trying to figure out how to apply this. And, and we've talked about before where you have kind of left-leaning courts, they are desperately trying to figure out how they can reconcile modern gun restrictions with um, the history and tradition of our nation, which did not typically restrict firearms very heavily. Um, But then you've also got courts that are perfectly happy to apply this new Bruin framework. This Texas court falls into the latter camp. Um, The judge looked at this. This was, you know, a a case involving someone who was accused of domestic violence but had not yet been put on trial for it, had not been convicted of doing anything wrong. And so the question before the court was, if the law requires that this person be uh, have their guns taken away from them before there's any sort of a conviction, can that be squared with the Second Amendment? And the judge says, I don't think he can. Says, you know, I've I've looked at the historical records trying to find uh, a a pre-conviction. Uh, law that would allow you to take away someone's firearms or limit their access to firearms before they've been proven to have done anything wrong, and it's just not there. So, under Bruin, this is unconstitutional. Um, It's interesting, this case came down within a couple of days of the Third Circuit uh, issuing a ruling on a similar issue. And, And again, now, the big question here is conviction. Right. So the Texas court was saying, if you have not yet been convicted, there's no historical 
suggestion that the government gets to take your firearms away or restrict your access to firearms. The Third Circuit was looking at a slightly different set of facts. The person had been convicted of a felony, but what felony had they been convicted of? Basically, welfare fraud. Uh, the the defendant in the case had um, misreported income in order to receive food stamps, and under federal law, that's a felony. Well, also under federal law, if you have been convicted of a felony, you can't possess guns. Well, I'm not trying to say that it's right that somebody can, uh, committed fraud, but at the same time, fraud is not a violent offense. Like, there's no suggestion that somebody who fudged their income so that they could receive welfare benefits is a danger to commit violence in their community. And, and so uh, this was an argument that we actually made in front of the Missouri Supreme Court several years ago when we were dealing with a, uh, a felon in possession law. And unfortunately, the Missouri Supreme Court acknowledged, or at least the majority did, that it doesn't matter how minimal the felony is or, or how disconnected it is from any suggestion of violence under the law. Um, if you're a felon, then you don't get protection under Missouri's uh, right to keep and bear arms. That's what the Missouri Supreme Court held. Here, the, the Third Circuit did basically the same thing. They said, well, look, the idea of the Second Amendment was to protect law-abiding citizens and it has always been understood that if you committed a felony, then you were no longer considered a law-abiding citizen, and therefore you waived your right to keep and bear arms. Now, I am not confident that that's actually an accurate description of history, but that's what the Third, Third Circuit said. But here's how they really stretched matters in order to get the result that they wanted, Gary. At the time of the ratification of the Constitution, there were there was only one federal felony, and that was treason. Um, under common law, in other words, the, the law as it existed prior to the Republic, when we were under English law, there were nine major felonies. Okay? It was murder, robbery, manslaughter, rape sodomy, larceny, arson, mayhem, and burglary, okay? Those are the big nine, all of which carry with it a suggestion of violence, all right? Mm -hmm. So if you had committed one of those felonies, you could at least temporarily be deprived of your right to keep and bear arms. But the Third Circuit is saying we're not going to look at the limited nature of what a felony meant at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment. We are going to assume that any felony, even a modern statutorily created felony that has no connection to violence whatsoever, removes you from the realm of law-abiding citizens who get to exercise Second Amendment rights. So I think this is a really skewed and improper reading of our history. I also think there's a chance this gets taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, probably before it goes up in front of them, there will need to be another circuit, very possibly the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, 
that comes up with a different interpretation that says, no, when we're talking about felons, we're talking about the big nine common law felonies. We're not talking about people who may have fudged their tax numbers so they can get welfare. Um, but, but if and when we have a federal circuit court that comes to a different conclusion than the third circuit, then I think the Supreme Court will be poised to take on this question and, and decide, um, can you be deprived of your Second Amendment freedoms for committing anything that the government has decided to call a felony, or does, uh, does the Constitution protect you unless you were convicted of one of the big nine common law felonies? Um, and it's also possible that the Supreme Court could end up saying you are still protected by the Second Amendment, even if you committed one of the big nine felonies, um, as long as you have paid your debt to society uh, by you know, being imprisoned and you've served at your sentence. Uh, it's possible that they might say, once you have done your time, once you have served your sentence, your Second Amendment rights are restored to you. I don't know for sure how they're going to come out on that. Um, I do think it's very likely that when the Supreme Court ultimately takes this up, they're going to say uh, that they're going to agree, number one, with the Texas court that said pre-conviction restrictions on Second Amendment rights are unconstitutional. And I think that they'll then reject the reasoning of the Third Circuit uh, and say that uh, unless you've been committed of a violent felony, probably one of the big nine, uh, then you still retain your Second Amendment rights. Well, worth watching, I will tell you that. Eighth Circuit uh, has made a ruling, um, and, and one of the things that we talked about with uh, President Biden's loan forgiveness is yeah, if you want to stop it, you've got to have standing. Well, apparently uh, there are at least one or two cases where they think they might have standing. We'll cover that ground in just a few minutes with Dave Rowland. On the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. Ten minutes to noon. Dave Rowland is with us. It is Think Tank Thursday, Gary Nolan Show. So if you wanted to challenge President Biden's loan forgiveness uh, plan, you had to have standing. And there was quite a bit of question about how in the world you would have standing. Uh, I think two cases uh, are, are kind of uh, wending their way forward on this. Eighth Circuit ruling, Dave, how did they decide this? The Eighth Circuit says there is standing under this unique set of circumstances. So the state of Missouri um, filed lawsuit to prevent the um, student loan forgiveness program from going into action. And part of their argument was that the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, otherwise known as MOHILA, uh, would be adversely impacted by any cancellation of the debt. In other words, Mohila gets revenue, um, uh, my understanding, is in part from the interest that is paid on these outstanding student loans. And so if that debt is forgiven, then Mohila no longer gets the interest from those loans, and that would be considered an injury or a detriment or at least that's the argument that Missouri was making. Now, what's really interesting here is that there's some question as whether Mohila is actually part of state government. So the state of Missouri filed suit 
arguing this injury to Mohila, but if Mohila is not actually part of the state government, there's a question of whether the the state itself has any authority to sue on its behalf or whether it would have to bring its own lawsuit if it was going to pursue this. Um, and I believe that, that those folks that are in charge of Mohila issued a public statement saying that they had nothing to do with the decision to file this lawsuit. And they didn't say that they that they were opposed to the lawsuit. They just said um, that they didn't have any role in deciding whether it was going to be brought. Ultimately, though, um, the court said it doesn't really matter because the state government um, has an interest in the funds that are available to Mohila. Therefore, they get to pursue uh, this kind of a case in light of the potential injury to the state, you know, that basically would come through the injury to Mohila. So it is an interesting argument, Gary, and and we've talked before, I was skeptical that um, that there was a standing mechanism that people could invoke. You know, I, I think that the student loan forgiveness program is pretty clearly unconstitutional. I just don't think Congress gave the executive branch, the authority to do this the way that they're doing it. Um, That's not to say that Congress could not give the president that authority. Um, And it's even possible that maybe Congress gave an executive official, the head of the Department of Education, the ability to modify student loans. But what happened here is the president decided on his own that he was gonna forgive student loans and I just, I don't think Congress gave him that authority. So the big question in this case is gonna be standing because I think once you get past standing, um, it's gonna be fairly easy for the courts to say, yeah, no, the, the, the president clearly exceeded his proper authority in doing this. Um, so the Eighth Circuit has, has made a pretty clear decision. They think that states, particularly the state of Missouri, have standing by virtue of the decreased revenue that they might be getting if this loan forgiveness plan goes forward. And um, now the question is, how quickly does the U.S. Supreme Court take up this kind of a case? It may take this particular case. It may take a similar case. But I think that they're going to have to deal with it because the injunction that the Eighth Circuit has issued is nationwide. So the Eighth Circuit is currently preventing the loan forgiveness from going into effect anywhere in the entire country. And now there, there are plenty of conservatives who would argue that courts should not have that kind of authority. Uh, matter of fact, at, at one of the Heritage Foundation events I attended a few years back, um, there was a whole session devoted to arguing that uh, federal courts should not have nationwide authority uh, to issue injunctions. I actually think that there are circumstances where a nationwide injunction is justified, but there are plenty of people who disagree with me on that, or at least they disagreed until it would work in favor of a particular case that they want to see. Yeah, and whose ox is gored? It's it's like whose ox is being gored. All right, we're fast running out of time, uh, but we're not running out of cases, so we've got to move along. It'll be curious to see if if it gets to the Supreme Court uh, just how they'll rule. Uh, Hopefully they stop this nonsense because it's going to cost us a ton of money. Missouri judge rules the attorney general's office under Josh Hawley knowingly violated transparency laws. Uh, What did he do and what are the consequences? 
Well, you know, so this is an issue that's been percolating for a while now. I want to be clear. The, um, the ruling here is an indictment of Josh Hawley's attorney general's office. It does not impact uh, what the attorney general's office has done since Eric Schmidt took over. So I want that to be clear. But while Josh Hawley was serving as the attorney general, he enlisted the assistance of effectively a consulting firm uh, to help him handle his office in such a way that it would set up his run for the Senate eventually. Um, So he was basically inviting these political actors to provide advice about how he should perform his duties as attorney general in such a way that it would set him up for a run for the Senate. Um, Many of the communications between these consultants and the attorney general and the other members of the attorney general's office took place on private communications devices, private computers, private email systems, private phones, etc. And the attorney general's office was arguing, so uh, one of the Democratic um, political entities filed a lawsuit trying to get access to these records. Well, first they asked for the records through a regular records request. When they were denied that, they filed the lawsuit. And it turned out that the attorney general's custodian of records actually did have a lot of these emailed communications that the requester was trying to get, but they were on the custodian's private devices, private computer, private email, private phone. And the question is, if the custodian of records has the documents but not on the official public system, does, does, does the custodian have to turn them over? The court has said, yes, you have to turn them over. Doesn't matter if they're retained on a public device or a private device. If the custodian has custody, they have to be turned over. Purposeful violation of the Sunshine Law, full civil penalties awarded to the plaintiff here. So who pays if, if they're, uh, is this something that uh, will, they'll come after Josh Hawley uh, for his financial, uh, you know, for him to pay? Or is no, it the taxpayers? Is, the, the taxpayers are going to bear the brunt. Again, the public officials almost never have actual skin in the game. I'd love to see the law changed, but as of right now, it's all on the taxpayers. Wow. Um, I've got less than a minute, so we're not going to get to this uh, lawsuit. Actually, seconds. Uh, Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org, uh, slash donate, uh, so he can continue to, to fight for people's freedom and keep the government in check. Dave, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gary. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem. Gwen, baby. Honey, I'm coming home.